Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. When the first COVID lockdowns were imposed in March 2020, teachers and social workers were really worried that being trapped in our homes would conceal poverty, hunger and abuse. But Stu Hennigan, an author and librarian, volunteered as a council delivery driver in Leeds, distributing food parcels and medicines to people who were self-isolating, and he saw it all firsthand. He recorded what he witnessed in a diary, which has become a short but devastating book, Ghost Signs, tracking the spread of poverty in Britain during the pandemic. The book has been shortlisted for a bunch of awards now and is forcing politicians to confront the extent of working poverty and deprivation across every English city. And Stu is with me today. Hi, Stu. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. So reading your book, particularly your accounts of um, driving through Leeds City Centre, it really took me back to the earliest days of the pandemic and how weird that time was. What what made you start writing a diary at that time? I think when when it all happened, I'd kind of I decided that I wanted to to write a little bit of just some notes really for for posterity as much as as much as anything because it was such a strange time. You know, there was that whole one of those rare occasions where you actually kind of you're aware that you're living through history it's not something that you look back on as being a kind of historic time retrospectively everybody kind of knew because it was it was such an unknown quantity to to everyone i suppose so when i said that i'd take on the the driving role i just decided to to kind of take my notebook out with me initially and just see if i could you know, just note a few things down if there was anything that that really caught my attention. The first weekend I worked was Easter weekend. So even the even the few places that had been allowed to remain open were closed. So I drove through the through the centre of Leeds on Good Friday. Just nothing. Com- you know, complete ghost town. And that, you know, that was kind of notable enough in itself, I suppose. And then the, the second day was Easter Saturday and I had to go pick up some pick up some medicine from from a chemist that turned out to be closed, actually. And from where we were to, to Morley, it was about 10 miles down, down the motorway and about 10 miles back. And I drove the whole trip, the whole round trip, and I didn't see another vehicle on the motorway. There was, there was just me and the M1 for 20 miles and it you know it just hit me then like I've literally got front row seats to the to the end of the world there's 800,000 adults in this city most of them have been told to stay at home and I've got free run of the place so really I need to be I need to be documenting some of what's what's going on just you know just for posterity as much as anything else it's turned into a polemic, really. I mean, I presume that wasn't your intention at the beginning, but it's it evolved in, into that. Well, I, I don't think it is a polemic because I tried to I tried to keep all my opinions out of it as far as possible. I suppose there's there's implicit criticism of the government. Mm. I suppose what you see speaks for itself <laughs> in that sense. That it's so shocking and so disturbing that it kind of it, it is that criticism in its own right. Yeah, kind of I just saw myself as like a kind of camera eye documenting it, especially at the point when I knew that the book was going to be published. I mean I didn't know that I was writing a book when I started or even that I was writing for publication. But that kind of all happened fairly early on and all the way through the editorial 
process kind of anywhere where it looked like I was there was too much of of my opinion we took it all out because the the whole kind of political discourse now is it's so it's so binary if you think this therefore you must automatically think xyz and it kind of it opens you up to those kind of accusations then that well you would portray it in this way because Uh, yeah yeah this so it's really important to me to take all of that stuff out and just just let the the evidence speak for itself I suppose yeah I mean one of the real sort of gut punches in your account comes when you say that it's now clear to you as you're driving around that you're no longer just helping out people who can't shop or go out and get the things they need like medications because they're self-isolating actually those who can't manage the basics of life for themselves and it's not so much about the pandemic but what else is going on as well yeah and that happened really really quickly I mean the warehouse was open for six months and I think apart from about the first 10 days I worked for the whole time and the shift in the demographic happened within a week of of me starting Mm. it's kind of interesting because the it's not I I wasn't unaware of this like the work that I've done over a long period of time in the city I've worked with you know a lot of these communities, Seacroft, Hare Hills, you know, crop up a lot. I worked in both of those areas for, for six years. So it's it's not like it was a surprise. It's just a different kind of interface, I suppose, rather mm. than meeting people in community centres and things like that. Like I know that those people are having a hard time because that's that's why I would have been working with them. But when you're standing on someone's doorstep and you can see through the front door and there's no furniture, there's no carpets, the ceiling's falling down, there's shit everywhere, there's not a single intact pane of glass in the building and you've got a woman with a six-month-old baby asking for nappies or formula, it's a completely different, it's a completely different experience of it. Yeah, I mean, what are I mean? You mentioned some of them there, but what are the other things that sort of really stick in your mind even now? I mean, you've put so many of them down in your account, but there must be some that kind of play on your mind still. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of. It's quite difficult to talk about some of them because it was it was really upsetting just to see people suffering in you know in in such a way. I mean, one I always get asked about is there was a little girl one day who. She just started dancing when she saw all the food. Like you'd have thought I was Father Christmas when I rocked up at her house. And that was just a that was a really bad day because I'd I'd come from the drop that I'd done just before that. There was a little boy who was probably about ten and he was leaning against the gatepost outside his house, you know, with his trackie and his baseball cap, just you know, just like a, a miniature kind of adult, I suppose. Mm sort of practicing his thousand yard stare on <laughs> and I was just like yeah all right is your is your mum there and he he sort of looked at me and went what do you want and I introduced myself you know I'm Stu from the council I've brought you food parcels and he's just mum mum there's food there's food and instantly he was just a little boy again mm. and that was that, that was heartbreaking and I went yeah I went straight from that to a little girl clapping her hands and dancing absolutely discombobulated at this food and you think like it's some cornflakes and a packet of biscuits and some pasta like 
that's absolutely outrageous that children should be reacting like that and it was really really upsetting yeah you described how we've taken some of you know your political views out of it so that the, the content stands alone for readers and they can make their own mind up about what they're hearing but I mean you I know separate to that you've been quite clear that you feel that Tory failures are you know are essentially responsible for that that you were you were witnessing is that, is that something that you've seen in, in Leeds over the years unfolding and then came to this kind of acute point during the pandemic? Yeah, I think that to, to me, the like the strapline for the book is poverty and the pandemic. That's the kind of lens that it's seen through, I suppose. To me, the book is about austerity as much as it, mm. as much as it is about the pandemic. The pandemic's almost the framing story and what you've seen, not just in Leeds, you know, in every town and city in the UK over the period of, you know, 10, 12 years since since David Cameron was, was Prime Minister, just all of these cuts to, to funding for the support services that these kind of communities need at exactly the same time as the, you know, deliberate policies from the government make life very, very difficult for these people. And it, it's what happens whenever you get a Tory government, kiss your public services goodbye. And if you combine that with the, the fact that the, the conservative approach to welfare is punitive rather than holistic, and then you just get this perfect storm of it. Obviously, Brexit didn't help either. And then you get the, you just, all of that, kind of coalesces in this perfect storm when when something like COVID happens and there was so many not just local authority services but, but third sector organizations who would have been there to help who have had drastic funding cuts and are either stretched up so thin they can't help everybody or they've just ceased to exist um, and that just that just compounds everything. Some of the parts I found hardest to read included people who had really bad untreated illness. So there's one person who has a festering leg abscess, which you described so um, perfectly. I, you know, you could almost smell it as I was reading. And and as you've already mentioned, families with toddlers who don't have enough nappies to stretch through the week and trying to work out how they're going to manage with that. And there's almost nothing that you could do about that as just as the delivery driver. You're witnessing it, but you know, there's not much you can do immediately to help. I mean, that must have been really hard. How was how was that to kind of negotiate emotionally? It was tough just knowing that there's so much more help that people need. It's not, it isn't purely a financial problem. That's the thing. I mean, yes, obviously having a little bit more money would, would obviously benefit these people enormously. But in some of the estates in, you know, in Seacroft, for, for example, again, I used to go to a lot of like multi-agency meetings there with third sector and stuff like that. You're getting into three and four generations of families that have been existing on benefits, you know, and it's the kind of trauma of poverty gets handed down in that sense. There's a medical name for it. It's called shit life syndrome. Wow. Uh, and it sounds like parody. It's 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 not, and it, it's a term that's used in the UK and in the US by um, 
mental health practitioners to describe the physical and mental health effects of this cumulative kind of trauma and that's a that's a really 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 difficult thing to to deal with and yeah from from the driving point of view it's hard i mean there's a passage in the book i think where there was a couple that were asking me for nappies and and things like that and they they were barely out with their teens you know and it was I think that was my last drop of the morning. It says in the book, if I'd have had any more food in the van, I would have given. Yeah, everything. this is it's the one that stuck out for me. Um, I've got toddler myself at the moment, and you can't help but just feel their pain. So young, you know, and trying to negotiate this with so little resources. It's just, it's a tough read, but so important. You also managed to capture, you know, some of the more surprising and amusing things that you you uh, you saw while you were on the road. Can you tell us a bit about about that. Yeah, I mean, there were kind of occasional moments of sort of reprieve, I, I guess. There was there was a lady one afternoon who she was she was a she was an older lady, lived on her own with this sort of huge gaggle of little dogs that I could hear inside the <laughs> house. There were there were a lot of people who was they were so scared they wouldn't open the door, which I completely understood. So she wanted me to pass me you know, passed me the bag through the window and as soon as she opened it, this little raggedy mop thing jumped out and started chasing me down the street, <laughs> bite my feet and stuff like that. And then a neighbour came out and, are you all right, love? And I was like, yeah, I'm just trying to drop this food parcel off here and the dog's chasing me and the woman shouting out of the window, ah, you bloody thing, get your ass back in here and can you help me get it in, love? And it's like, <laughs> no, I don't need this. I'm not going to try and pick it up because it's probably going to bite my fingers. <laughs> like a fast. <laughs> yeah, I managed to kind of shoo it inside in the end. So there were little moments like that. And, you know, by and large, people were really, really grateful as well. You know, we did manage to sort of have, I mean, not really have a laugh, but, you know, there were some nice chats that, that, all of us, you know, we'd come back, the, the drivers, there were probably maybe 30 of us, maybe more over the course of the six months. We'd come back and, you know, we'd be having a brew and swapping stories and, you know, everybody had seen these terrible things and everybody had, you know, other tales to tell. We, we were sat one day and there was one of the one of the fellas who, very, very dry, really deadpan, known him for quite a long time actually and there's a bit of a lull in the chat and he just looked up and said well I'm gonna need some therapy when I'm <laughs> job and everyone went why is why is that and this is a guy that used to work in you know prisons and stuff and he just went well I thought that dressing gowns were supposed to be fastened and everyone just went yeah <laughs> Is because we all saw it. We all saw it day in, day out. And there were little things like that that lightened it a little bit. We'd, we'd probably have gone nuts if not. I mean, like you say, most of the people you record in, in your book uh, are incredibly grateful and there's that overwhelming sense of support. And like you say, at that time, conversation was, you know, in itself a golden thing, wasn't it? Because we weren't seeing each other. And like, right. in your drops, you're kind of bringing that 
human connection, which people are missing out on. But despite that, there's also a sense from some of the people that you meet of like complete disenfranchisement. So when they know and find out that you represent the council, they see you, in your words, as the enemy, even though you're actually there to help. Did you experience a lot of that? And, you know, what was you, what do you think about why that occurred? What why that was playing out in Leeds? The kind of extreme of it, we we didn't experience a lot of. There, there was a bloke who came running out of his house, threatening to headbutt me one day, which was about as bad as it got. And a couple of days later, like something similar happened, and I was just. I was thinking, like, I'm just going to have to deck this guy. Like, I can't deal with this because I was so rattled from from what had happened a couple of days before. I mean, I I totally get it in a sense. You know, people are they're just ghettoized. They're completely disenfranchised. They don't feel as if they're getting any any help. You know, because often they're not. And mm-hmm. I think that anything that sometimes is not kind of of them it's like you're either one of us or you're not you know and if they see somebody from a local authority coming around well what does this fucker want you know last time somebody in one of those vans came around my neighbor got evicted or you know someone's chasing unpaid rent or i've been trying to get hold of this department for six months to fix the leak in my roof but no one's come around to do it. You know, all of these kind of things. So anything that they see as, you know, kind of not being sort of of, of them, it's like the the big other, I suppose. Mm. And they're naturally suspicious of it. And I completely get it. They've they've got nowhere to they've got nowhere to go. So, you know, they might as well come out swinging. Although I'd rather not I'd you know, I can handle it metaphorically. I'd rather, <laughs> rather not have done it literally, but I, I completely understand why why some people were wary of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned that in your views that this is about the effect of austerity. I mean, do you witness in that also a com- kind of complete detachment of this conservative government from real people in Leeds or outside the south, essentially living their lives completely separate from where policy is being made? Yeah, well, I, I think they don't give a fuck, to be honest. I think everything that they've done over quite a long period of time kind of demonstrates that. I mean, I, I did an event with Prospect Magazine in November where I spoke on the panel with Justine Streeting, I think she was next Tory cabinet minister and a couple of um, think tank people. And um, I did a meet and greet sort of thing afterwards. There were, you know, people, people coming to speak to me and... Um, you know, one one of these people was telling me, I think he was a Tory MP, um, he was telling me that family values are breaking down because, you know, society's a mess because people don't eat Sunday lunch together. <laughs> he went off, wow. on, went off on this big, big rag about how, um, you know, Sunday lunch, it can be five or six hours of a job in my house when the wine starts flowing. And oh, I was like, well... Fucking hell, bully for you, pal. Like you've spent more money on that one meal than these families have got to live on for a month. Yeah, absolutely. That's the kind of disconnect that, that you're talking about. But I, I genuinely believe that they do not care because nothing that they've done, you know, challenges that. You, you've got this real cognitive dissonance on the part of the government. I think where 
they implement policies that make life very, very hard for people and then refer them to services that no longer exist because of the results of other policies that they've implemented. So when everything was kicking off last year with utilities bills and things like that, they would say, well, local authorities are going to have warm banks in, you know, in a library mm. or a sports hall or whatever. And it's like, well, guess what? The fucking council can't pay their electricity bill. Right, exactly. Yeah. You've cut hundreds of millions of pounds from their funding over a 10-year period. And they, they just don't get it. They really, really don't. Hopefully someone in Whitehall was listening to that. Thanks so much for joining me, Stu. No worries. Thanks for having me. I like doing these. Uh, it's um, it's good to good to do another. If you want to get hold of the book, it's Ghost Signs, Poverty and the Pandemic, published by Blue Moose Books. The bunker is free to download, but if you like what you're hearing and you want to make sure there's more where this came from, then you can back us on Patreon. Just choose the amount you want to donate and help keep us bringing you podcasts. I'm Hannah Fern. Thank you for listening. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Hannah Fern. The producers were Jack Gerbertson and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.